Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. This is a special panel edition of the podcast. The coronavirus pandemic has brought a number of issues to the fore from the NHS preparedness to long-term challenges relating to the economy. It has also meant that domestic abuse services are braced for an avalanche of new cases as a result of measures designed to prevent the spread of the disease. There is global concern that social distancing practices put in place across the world will lead to an increase in domestic abuse. The Office for National Statistics estimates that 1.6 million women and 786,000 men in England and Wales experienced some form of domestic abuse in 2019. When it comes to how this abuse manifested itself, Women's Aid's domestic abuse report for 2019 found that nearly a third of respondents who suffered abuse said access to money during the relationship was controlled by the perpetrator, with a quarter saying their partner did not let them have access to money for essentials during the relationship. The government's domestic abuse bill is the most comprehensive legislative package to date on the issue, and among its new measures, economic abuse will be for the first time recognised as a form of coercive control that sits alongside physical and sexual abuse. Introduced to Parliament in March, it's been a long time in the making. So what does the new legislation mean for how we tackle domestic abuse, what more can be done now, and who exactly needs to do it? To try and answer these questions, I'm joined by Jess Phillips, Labour MP and domestic abuse campaigner. Jess spent five years working for Women's Aid, the charity which works to end domestic abuse against women and children. Olivia Roby, who advises organisations on safeguarding and vulnerability policy. She previously served as special advisor to the Home Secretary on crime, policing and vulnerability, where she worked extensively on the domestic abuse bill and efforts to end violence against women and girls. Fiona Cannon, Responsible Business Sustainability and Inclusion Director at Lloyds Banking Group, which is kindly sponsoring this podcast. Cannon has spoken of the need for banks to raise awareness of financial abuse and she helped launch a customer support service to help those who are victims of financial, economic and domestic abuse. Olivia, you worked extensively on the domestic abuse bill while in government. So can you explain to listeners why has financial control been included? Yeah, sure. So economic abuse, as you say, is included in the bill in that it falls under this new statutory definition of domestic abuse. And that might sound like a kind of wonky provision, but actually it's really practically helpful bit of kit because what it serves to do is emphasise that domestic abuse is not just physical violence, but can also include things like emotional abuse, coercive control and, as you say, economic abuse. And so the point here is for government to be reinforcing to uh, victims, to perpetrators, to the police that a relationship does not need to involve violence to be completely unacceptable and illegal. And on the sort of specifics of economic abuse, it it includes things beyond withholding or manipulating someone with cash. It's about money and the things that money can get you. It's probably worth mentioning that the vast majority of survivors do experience economic abuse at some stage, normally in conjunction with other abusive behaviours. The kind of tactics can mainly be split into three chunks so it it would be things like controlling how the victim gets hold of money an economic resource to that might include behaviors like preventing the victim from being in employment or letting them access benefits then it's limiting how the victim uses the money and resource they do have access to so that might be things like removing their access to a phone or a car they might need to get to work 
And then thirdly, spoiling the victim's ability to maintain the economic resource that they do have. So that might be, you know, stealing their money or property, wrecking their stuff, spending money that's needed for bills and racking up debts in the victim's name, which sometimes takes place without their knowledge. Now, the reason why economic abuse is so important to be flagging and why it's explicitly mentioned in the bill is sort of intuitive because a lack of resource can result in victims staying with abusive partners for far longer as they simply don't have the means to leave. That obviously means they're exposed to harm for a greater period of time. You know, when you have no money, the barriers to escaping can seem insurmountable. So in lots of ways, that sort of financial stability is inextricably linked to physical safety. So that was why we felt it was really important to make explicit reference to it. Jess, prior to entering Parliament, you worked for Women's Aid for several years. Have you seen how control over someone's finances can be used as a form of coercive control? Oh, yeah. In in almost every single case that you handle, there will be an element of economic abuse and financial control. It often manifests itself in the cases that I have handled and still handle as a member of Parliament. In, in debt, the, the sort of pernicious nature of getting women into debt or making them fear being in debt in order to control them. And I, I mean, I've met women who've had tens of thousands of pounds of debt racked up against them, their property, that have just added to a, a level of insecurity. Debt with regard to their their rent often so one of the main problems in order to move out of a property into another property is the problem of rent arrears and if you have rent arrears certainly if you're in social housing what you'll find is it's almost impossible then to move on to a different property and so it is just a delicious tool to perpetrators in lots of cases to use that as as a means of of imprisoning women in their homes and it sounds almost like you know too sort of far-fetched in some regards but you'd be surprised how regular perpetrators behavior is it's as if there's a book online somewhere that they're all reading and finding out the ways to to properly manipulate people you find in cases of immigration where if a woman is here on a spousal visa for example her access to any sort of financial support or any benefits for her children is all entirely through that spouse and her immigration status relies on it. It is almost in every single case like that I have seen, I've seen where the fact that they have no money and won't be able to access any money be used to control. Fiona, you've been uh, leading industry efforts to tackle financial abuse to work out, I suppose, the, t- the telltale signs. Are we at a sea change moment in how we view domestic abuse as a whole? I think that certainly we're at a time where awareness has been raised around this issue. I still think that there is a massive amount of stigma around the whole domestic abuse piece, and so that is still getting in the way. And I still think that there are a lot of individuals who don't necessarily, certainly in terms of the economic abuse, don't know where to go to get support and advice. And so I think we're at a tipping point. But I think that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to involve employers more in this space, because if people are in work, it can be a real safe space. And employers can do a lot around raising awareness and removing some of that stigma. I mean, I think one of the facts that is most striking to me is if if you look at most employers, only 5% of employers have got any kind of domestic abuse policy in any shape or form. 
And so I think there is a, an opportunity here to make sure that we involve all parts of society, including employers, to start to really make sure that this is a tipping point where we can really make a difference. Jess, when it comes to who commits financial abuse, it's clearly aimed at the most vulnerable. But other particular groups that are more vulnerable than this to others, so for example, the elderly and the disabled? Yeah, I mean, there, w- there will be different levels of vulnerability. But actually, I mean, anyone can suffer from this or any form of abuse. But I mean, some of the worst cases that I have seen of really bad economic abuse have been in incredibly high earning women who, you know, you, not necessarily the people that you would see living in women's refuges, because often they have other resource to be able to to protect themselves in these circumstances but I've, I've had hundreds of thousands of pounds siphoned off them by abusive partners and have often I've seen really bad cases of very very successful women being sort of forced into keeping jobs that they were not happy in or were deeply like you know were damaging their health because they were being forced by their partner because of maintaining some sort of structure but there are absolutely groups of people who have terrible vulnerabilities to this disabled women are almost always forgotten actually in most of the legislation but also most of the practice around domestic abuse there is very very little provision for people with learning difficulties and people with physical disabilities are are locked out of lots of the systems and in this instance there will be a huge amount of economic abuse going on I would just echo actually from Jess around, you know, who is vulnerable. I mean, in terms of that high income women perspective, I think when we first started talking about domestic abuse at Lloyd's, one of the case studies we used and one of the examples was of one of our most senior women in the organisation who had experienced domestic abuse and economic abuse. And I think that was just really powerful, A, because she was showing her story, but but also because it just kind of blew away this myth that there are certain groups of people who are more vulnerable than others. And Jess's point that, you know, is absolutely right, that this can affect everybody and anybody can be a victim, no matter what your circumstances are. So that was really a, a kind of real eye-opening moment, I think, in terms of removing some of the myths that are around, around this whole area. Olivia, was that something you came across when in government was working on this piece and how to include it because I, I suppose there can be almost a particular stigma I suppose towards successful women who financially successful women who find it hard to admit this had happened to them perhaps so listen I think that the point that Jess raised is absolutely right domestic abuse can happen to anybody and I think that's one of the things that's so critical about that statutory definition just to go back to that a big part of that is making victims aware if you are seeing any of these behaviors this is not the sort of rough and tumble of a romantic relationship these behaviors are unacceptable and illegal and so sort of trying to close that sort of cognitive dissonance gap which can sometimes exist in the mind of victims felt like a really critical piece of work. The other thing that I would flag in with regards to women who are particularly vulnerable on the other end of the scale you know there are really grave concerns about the impact of domestic abuse on migrant women which I share the sort of critical difference being the lack of recourse to public funds and perhaps an increased reticence to go to the police because of concerns about insecure immigration status which can obviously be leveraged against victims by their abuser. So this can happen to any sort of woman so I think it's really important for government to be cognizant of the ways in which it affects different groups of women. 
Fiona, Lloyd's have brought in, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this customer support service where staff have been trained specifically to spot and help victims. So what kind of things are you looking for when it comes to trying to spot signs of financial abuse? So I think some of the things that we're looking at, first of all, we've been we've been working with third sector charities, so tender surviving economic abuse to kind of help us in this space, because our starting point really is just to for our own staff to understand what some of the signs are. And, and some of these things, you know, can be quite ingrained in people's thinking. So if you think about the way that you know in some households traditionally the man looked after the finances and you know and all of that kind of stuff there's a kind of unconscious bias thing built into that already so you need to kind of get underneath some of those issues first with with our own staff so they can understand what some of the issues are and then be able to recognize when if someone's talking about any issues around debt to be able to ask the right questions for example so really the the training is around getting people to ask the right questions to recognize when someone might be having some problems and then to be able to signpost them to where they can go and then to kind of take some action depending on what the issue might be but I think the starting point is just really being able to understand all the various and differing ways in which abuse can can play out. I think that the issue about asking the right questions is you know I've been on millions of trainings I've run millions of domestic abuse training sessions and I'm not sure that there is any better training or better question than really really simply being willing to ask any question that is it doesn't have to be as sort of gruesome as you know is your husband controlling you it is usually as simple as just saying to somebody is everything okay at home and often we call victims of domestic violence hard to reach they're hard to reach communities and it's not my experience that they are hard to reach if you are if you make yourself available and you make it clear in your establishments that you care and you will believe people if they come forward and you know I have a public persona as somebody who will believe people and people will I mean not so much now in these times of isolation but people used to come up to me in the supermarket and just I've had women tell me that they'd been raped the week before in the checkout at the supermarket because they knew that I was somebody that they would believe. So institutions can absolutely be doing a huge amount. We will eventually have, once the domestic abuse bill goes through, it is literally the most ill-fated bill in the history of all legislative bills in that it never, ever quite makes it to the floor of the House. But when it eventually does, we'll have a framework for legal action against this type of crime. But also, hopefully, what that will come with is some resource so that there's places to refer. But institutions will be able to do so much then just without it doesn't cost anything to train your staff to just say, is everything okay at home? Yeah, I mean, Jess is absolutely right that that whole kind of the starting point for us is the two things that we ask our colleagues to do is to listen and to believe. I mean, those are the two kind of most important bits. And it doesn't isn't complicated in, in that sense, and it doesn't cost lots of money. But then knowing where to go to, so we're because we're working with the charities and they're working really closely with this um, specialist unit, it means that they're kind of standing alongside us because 
you know, to be able to kind of direct and signpost and work with the individual as well. So you kind of get this double bubble of a, us being able to help from a financial perspective and to kind of sort out some of those practical issues and at the same time to be able to signpost people, uh, individuals to where they can get some, some more emotional support as well. And so that's the, the most important thing. And the, the listening and believing is kind of the, the basis of everything. Olivia, Jess mentioned there how this bill has been rather ill-fated if you think about how long it's been discussed. At the time of recording, I think it has now had its first reading in the House of Commons. Jess, am I right to say that? For the third time, it has had its first reading in the House of Commons, yeah. But the coronavirus means that we aren't expecting it to go much further anytime soon with Parliament off indefinitely. Obviously, things like a pandemic can't quite be avoided. But Olivia, why is it that this bill's been so long in the making? Because is when it was first brought into the public domain, it, it was supposed to be part of Theresa May's flagship policy programme. Yeah. Well, listen, I think you raised a really serious point and it's not good enough how late it is. This, I suspect, is one of the side effects of the broader kind of hot mess that has been Westminster in the last few years. I mean, as, as you say, the bill was promised in the 2017 general election manifesto. Subsequently, we have had three Home Secretaries and gosh, uh, how many Justice Secretaries, Lidders, Gork and Robert Buckland. The other thing I would flag is, you know, when we were in the Home Office, there was also the matter of finding the parliamentary time with, you know, competing critical government business and all of the really important Brexit legislation and SIs. But you're absolutely right. It's taken far too long. And just to sort of zoom in on some of the provisions of the bill, you know, the bill includes a measure that seeks to prohibit a terrible practice whereby perpetrators can cross-examine their victims in the family courts. That change is long overdue and it's desperately needed. So I agree, it's, it's not good enough. The people are waiting. That part of the bill as well was part of the prisons and courts bill, which Quite. was before 2017. Quite. So that was a 2016 thing, and we got that all the way to second reading, but then and the uh, fell, snap general it? election stopped it. That particular yeah. law change, I think, is now on its like ninth cycle of needing Yeah, change. yeah. I've learnt to laugh now because I've been <laughs> so despairing for so long. Yeah. If we work on the basis, and I think we're going to have to into this podcast, that it is going to go through. Yes, we know there is the majority support. Through, yeah. yeah. We know there's the cross-party support for what the bill is trying to do, and we know it is only a matter of time. Jess, do you think that in its current form it goes far enough? No, but I mean, you could argue that I would never be satisfied, which I'm sure is probably what many of the civil servants would say about me. But it needs some serious work in certain areas that, I mean, Olivia has already highlighted the, the, the main one, which is the area of migrant women. And I think it, the bill will, in its current form, not win the support of the violence against women and girls sector unless it goes much further in offering support to migrant women with no recourse to public funds because currently it doesn't do anywhere near enough and the day after the bill has passed if you were one sort of migrant woman for example a migrant woman who was here on a student visa rather than a spousal visa and was being beaten up by your partner you wouldn't be able to necessarily access refuge or any of the support services or be able to get social accommodation or be able to get any welfare there is a real problem with the bill in that regard there are other areas that i think 
potentially need more work but that's what the parliamentary process is for and every time it gets to its first reading what the ministers stand in front of us and say and I have no reason to think it's anything but completely honest and with goodwill is that that's where the bill will start to improve both in the commons and the lords and we're just never ever able to get to that stage yet but I I think that it will improve by the time it gets passed because I'm very, very noisy and annoying. The other thing I wanted to flag about the issue with regards to migrant victims and survivors is this is not an issue that is singular to domestic abuse. This problem crops up across the violence against women and girls' peace. So what I would love to see is some kind of impetus to have a firewall between reporting crimes and immigration enforcement really across the piece. Absolutely. She's, she's absolutely right. And can I just say, when Olivia was at the home, office I had her mobile number so you know I used to just ring her up and moan at her about different things and the response was quicker Olivia I'd just like you to know. Sorry to slightly interrupt the loving but Fiona I just wanted you to bring in on on room for improvement because you've spoken about earlier in the podcast about space for employers to be part of the solution so is there anything specific you think that could be brought in to to lend itself to achieving that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is that, that you know, the, the bill is just hugely welcome. And, and as Jess said, going through Parliament now will, will kind of enable it to be, get better. And there are lots of spaces where it could be improved, obviously, even if you just looked at things like strengthening the powers of the Domestic Abuse Commissioner and, and, and things along those lines. But but I think from an employer perspective, I think there... And, and, you know, this is a criminal justice bill in that sense, so you can see why it's been set up the way it's been set up. But I do think we're missing a bit of a trick not to have something around employers in here, given the impact that they can have and the need to be able to raise awareness across such a, a wide group of individuals about what support and signpost them to support, etc. And so normally I would never want to have legislation as an employer that I could avoid, but in this instance, I think probably having something, and it, it's not ideal, but something, for example, around leave. So, oh, yeah. you know, in Australia, it's in the legislation that employers have to provide emergency leave for victims of domestic abuse. And so I think something along that line, which on one level will be more symbolic than anything else because it, that's not going to deal with everything, but it does mean that employers have to start looking at this issue. And I think we need to find some kind of hook in that gets employers to start really considering this as an issue. And I don't think we've got the time to wait for it to kind of just build its own momentum. So I think on this occasion, something like getting some emergency leave in there from an employer perspective would be really helpful. I think that that is a brilliant idea and Lloyd's already did it, don't you? I'm always, I'm constantly citing the Lloyd's example whenever anyone says, oh, I'm just not sure how this would work. I'm like, well, you could speak to Lloyd's because they're doing it. Very pleased to hear it. But yeah, no, exactly. And look, it's not a big deal. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we do compassionate leave on all sorts of issues. Yeah. You know, it, it's really not... Um, I don't think any employer would find it really difficult. I think the problem is that, you know, people don't really think about domestic abuse and employers don't think about domestic abuse because they think it's about a personal relationship, you know, or a criminal relationship and it's not something that they should be involved in. But actually, there's some really simple things that you could be doing and, and this leave thing, I think, is one of them. Yeah, well, work is for lots of women the safest place for them. Work and school, and so that's why at the moment it is terrifying. Yeah, no, I mean, the the whole COVID-19 thing is you can just see how challenging it all is at the moment, because you're absolutely right. We just did a call last week 
online with colleagues and honestly the amount of colleagues we had on the call you know wanting to know that there was still support available for them was really was huge and quite overwhelming and so I think there is a lot of anxiety out there at the moment as we all know in this space. I wanted to end this podcast with you know a final section on things that everyone can do and things that we should be thinking about but one thing when I was preparing for this podcast is we talked about how economic abuse can often mean that victims a are controlled during the relationship but secondly it can be much harder for them to leave the relationship and I've read of cases and I'm sure you've all come across them where the victim and the abusive relationship ends with tens of thousands of debts and that is a result of that so I was wondering what the panel thought about ideas of you know victims of financial abuse having their debts cleared or some form of debt relief when they find themselves in this situation. Perhaps if I just jump in there, I think that, you know, you're absolutely right to emphasise that EA doesn't necessarily end once you've managed to extricate yourself from the relationship with debt being a real consideration. Kind of on the hoof, but, you know, ill-gotten gains are confiscated in serious organised crime using the Proceeds of Crime Act. So I wonder if you could perhaps extrapolate that principle, you know, coercive control, which EA falls under, is a crime. So if an abuser's racked up debt in your name, they've benefited from a criminal asset. So perhaps you could look at a mechanism that transfers the liability for that debt if EA has been proven or look at reclassifying it as fraud or something yeah the the only trouble being is I mean I totally agree with the principle absolutely and I think that what Olivia suggests is exactly right and the, the the way that we should go is the ability to gain a criminal conviction is still so so yeah. difficult and so much onus although however I think it would the suggestion that your debts provably ill-gotten could you know form part of uh, any sort of criminal proceedings i think actually would would help women stay in the criminal justice system because for so many a, a lot of women what they'll say is just i just don't care i'll take the debt when they when they finally got to that point they're just like oh god it doesn't matter i just need i need to get out and then they're left basically never being able to progress and thrive not just survive because of the shackles of the debt around their neck and it's so 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 common i'm afraid to say so some some sort of proceeds of crime debt consolidation just it seems like a good idea to me yeah, I certainly think there's something that we all need to work together on to, to look at what that could be. I mean, we look at it on a kind of case by case basis if people have been coerced into to taking on large amounts of debt. But it is one of those things that you could see that across industry, certainly from the financial services sector, we could look at alongside that whole, you know, because it kind of sits in that fraud space. Absolutely, doesn't it, in a sense. And so. I don't know what the answer is yet because we're all just kind of finding our way through it. But it feels like that's a space that we really need to all together work on to explore what could be done in a way that people aren't living with, the women aren't living with the after effects for, for years and years to come. That, as you say, just means that they're not they're not thriving at all and, and struggling throughout for the years afterwards. So I think that's an area that we definitely need to look at. I think that, you know, leaving the debt aside, there are certainly better safeguards needed to protect those women who are fleeing EA from destitution. And one of the things that I worry about that government could deal with is that gap between claiming universal credit and the receipt of your first payment. You know, if there was a way that 
that could be expedited, it would support those who are fleeing their abuser with no resource whatsoever. It's also worth considering that for lots of women who flee, they have the additional stress of becoming a single parent overnight. So receiving that first benefit quickly is absolutely critical. I think that maybe Olivia should become a Labour MP. Yeah. <laughs> if you'll have me, Jeff, if you'll have me. <laughs> But that's also why I think it's important to, you know, make sure we're involving employers in this because, of course, if, if, if a woman does have to flee, if she's at work, there are things that employers can do to support yeah. that period. Do you know what I mean? So be that emergency Forward funding. payments and funding, things, yeah, yeah. All of that kind of stuff, salary finance, whatever it may be. And so the more we can get, again, the more we can get employers involved in this to be able to support individuals too, then that's going to be very powerful. Now, there are two final things I wanted to bring up before we bring this podcast to a close. The first being is, as we've touched on, the coronavirus pandemic means that there's grave concern about what this means in terms of domestic abuse victims that we expect to see a rise. We're hearing from that from other countries. What can everyone do to support and raise awareness of domestic abuse? I think a lot of people often feel quite helpless in all this. So we have employers, we have MPs, but I just wonder if there's anything you think that people who are just generally worried about it can do to help? Well, at the moment, while people are in their homes, there is a a higher likelihood that they will hear or be aware of what's going on with their neighbours in a way that maybe we've never been before. And people should... there There is guidance, I think, Safe Lives... The charity have put out guidance around what to do and if, you, if you're worried for somebody who is in your neighbourhood. We can all put the, the national domestic abuse lines on all of our social media and things like that. But I mean, it's I'm afraid to say that it isn't just uh, data from other countries now. In my own police force area, I spoke to the Humber Police Force and police forces in Scotland already in the last week, the call-out rate for domestic abuse is up by 20%. Yeah, I mean, I think the advantage that we've got with the customer base that we've got, as well as the colleague base, I mean, we've got 30 million customers, and and one of the things that we're doing is using all the channels that we've got to signpost people to where they can go to get support, highlight things like the Blue Sky app, give the the helpline numbers out as well. So we've got the ability to get to quite a large number of people through using our distribution channels. And I think that's going to be a very powerful way of of kind of just keeping this and making sure that people know that there is support out there, that, that they're not on their own because it must be all of us are feeling weird at the moment in terms of this kind of being isolated but but if you're in a kind of domestic abuse relationship as well I mean it must be absolutely terrifying so reassuring people that there's still places that they can go to get support I think is really powerful again. And just on two quick policy specific points, Priti Patel's helpfully kind of clarified that women who are being abused should leave the home and seek safety, which is fine and is great, but we need to make sure there are places for them to go, which I think probably means a pretty quick cash injection for refuges or or Jess, I know you suggested hotel rooms as is being done for homeless people. The other thing I would say is that there are big concerns about child abduction in DA during this period of time. You know, we know how often children are weaponised in domestic abuse. So let's say the child goes to visit the abusive father for court mandated contact. What if dad doesn't return the child? You know, the courts aren't running as usual. So victims can't get the child back that way and it potentially puts them in serious harm's way. Mm. 
I mean, you make a really important point, Liv, about making sure that the charities survive. You know, we've got our four foundations at the moment and, you know, we know from talking to them that the charities are, are kind of really, they're always at the kind of, you know, could go under at any one point in, in normal times. But when, this, when the, the kind of demand goes up, it's really essential that we don't lose those really kind of core charities in this space, yeah. Finally, we spent a lot of time and understandably of this podcast talking about victims of financial abuse, victims of domestic abuse. But I wondered, what about perpetrators? Because is there more that can be done to change behaviour, to tackle it in that sense? Fiona, do do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a really important point, isn't it? When we first started looking at domestic abuse, you kind of don't even want to go near the perpetrator piece on one level because your focus is on victims. But actually, unless you do deal with perpetrators, then then actually the issue is never going to get resolved. And one of the things that through our charitable foundations that we've been working with respect safe lives and social finance is is to do a a new program called drive working with perpetrators to get some specialist intervention at the point where they've been through the through the courts and actually that's been really successful because there's been a 30% reduction in criminal domestic violence acts for those perpetrators who've been through that as compared to no change at all for those who haven't been through it and so i think it really demonstrates the need to make sure that we look at perpetrators and certainly from from an employer's perspective again the way we've been approaching this issue is on one level through a well-being perspective so you've got you know healthy bodies healthy minds healthy relationships and healthy finances and under the healthy relationships piece is where you talk about what what what's a healthy relationship and we talk about domestic abuse there and actually what it's done is trigger a lot of people in the organization men who maybe have grown up in a in a family that was subject to domestic abuse and think that that the way that they behave is normal and so you know in some cases not all of it obviously but actually they're now looking for support from us around how do how do they change their behavior because that's the experience that we've had and so I think we're now looking at what we can be doing on the perpetrator side but I think it's really important that we deal with it from both sides. Perhaps just to jump in there, one of the things that I also think is missing from the bill, which perhaps answers this question, is right now the bill only recognises victims over the age of 16. Um, the idea being to catch those intimate, personal, abusive relationships, which can start very young. And what I would love to see is a sort of broader cultural step change that starts to recognise children as victims and not just witnesses of domestic abuse. Because one of the things we know is that one of the biggest risk factors of being abuser is having been raised in a home with domestic abuse. So the best thing to do to prevent more perpetrators is to make sure women have the support and resource they need to get their kids out of these toxic environments very quickly. You know, there's this horrible kind of cyclical intergenerational nature to DA in that these kids growing up in these homes vastly over-index as victims of perpetrators of abusive relationships in adulthood. So that would be a good way of helping to address perpetrators. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you, Fiona. And thank you for listening. And for those affected by any of the issues we've discussed on this podcast, the National Domestic Abuse Helpline provides help for domestic abuse victims. And the number is 0808 2000 247.